Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. And today on our show, we have Dr. Catherine Menjerink from the Weight Institute. Catherine leads a team of ocean experts in developing and implementing blue prosperity programs, including maritime spatial planning and blue economy projects. She works in partnership with governments, NGOs, and ocean experts across the globe. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thanks, Colleen. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. And I always start the show off with a little bit of background of our guests. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about how your passion for the ocean began and maybe give us a little glimpse into your history. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. Well, um, I guess, you know, going way back, I grew up in the generation of Jacques Cousteau roaming the world's oceans and, um, and, you know, fell in love with the ocean from those shows. But I, um, I would say my first big step or leap into the ocean realm was that I landed a summer job uh, when I was in college at a Florida Marine station. And I ended up researching the neurology of jellyfish. Um, and I would say like, you know, sitting in a lab staring at jellyfish neurons isn't particularly you know, thrilling, but being in the ocean itself was uh, um, really pretty amazing. And from there I was hooked. So um, so that was really my, my leap. Um, and then I, I had the good fortune to go to Scripps Institution of Oceanography for graduate school and um, obtained my PhD in marine biology there. I studied uh, sea urchins once again. I stuck with invertebrates and <laughs> um, and delving into the the details of, of what made them function physiologically. But um, the other thing that I was able to do was uh, I became a science diver and while I was there, and that really uh, inspired me in a way that um, was pretty transformational and, and changed my thinking about about the ocean and, and how much, um, what an amazing, amazing, amazing place it is. Uh, no, there's nothing like spending time underwater uh, in kelp forest, which is where I learned how to dive. Um, it really was incredible. So um, that, that was how I ended up in science. And then I actually uh, started to think more about um, the ocean and, and what its future was gonna be. And I realized you know, that the ocean today um, wasn't quite what it was in the in the past that you know fish weren't as big um, that that there was a lot of habitat destruction and that a lot of scientists had deep knowledge about what's wrong and challenging um, and and a problem with the ocean but that perhaps that message wasn't reaching policymakers and decision makers so after wrapping up my phd i then went on to law school and studied ocean law and policy. So that's, um, anyways, I, I managed to pull that all together and then create a career where I get to use both a little bit of my science brain and some of my law and policy brain in the work that I do today. Yeah. Um, I love that you mentioned starting with uh, the neurology of jellyfish, uh, because I, I find, you know, jellyfish are just fascinating creatures. And, you know, they've drifted along the ocean currents for millions of years, even be- before the dinosaurs lived on Earth. And you know, despite their name, they're not actually fish, like you said, uh, with the sea urchins. They're invertebrates, and uh, so they're animals with no backbones. And I, I just find them to be mesmerizing whenever I'm at an exhibit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now, now you work for the Weight Institute, and can you tell us a little bit about this organization and what it does? 
Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so the Weight Institute, Weight, W-A-I-T-T, was um, created and by our founder and our chair, Mr. Ted Waite, and, and just a little history of him. He was uh, the former, or um, he founded or co-founded Gateway Computers. So if you remember, those of us who are old enough to remember the computers that had the cow box print, um, that was him. Um, the nice thing was that he also... Uh, in his life, realized that the ocean was an amazing place, but it, it was under threat by human activity. And he focuses his philanthropy today on oceans. So I have the mm -hmm. good fortune of being the executive director of the Wade Institute, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization. Um, we're based in California, or most of us are, but in fact, our, our network and our colleagues are all over the world. And, and our work is really focused on supporting healthy oceans. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, um, we work on both um, marine spatial planning or marine protection, but also blue economy. Um, so that's, but both of those things are, are really important in thinking about how do we achieve a future that that is sustainable. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned the blue economy and some of the different work that the Wade Institute does. Can you tell us a little bit about the activities or areas that your organization focuses on? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so our, our mission at its core, our mission is to support sustainable, resilient, thriving seas that benefit all. And, and I want to focus on those last two words. Um, at the end of the day, we are all users of the ocean in different ways. We all, as, as a globe, rely on the ocean you know, for the air that we breathe, for the nutrient cycling, for the climate that we live in. Um, and we are, um, so, so that's, it's important for us to, in, in the context of thinking about ocean sustainability and preservation, that, that we're not only thinking about um, how to protect things, um, just protect biodiversity or make sure that, you know, there's enough fish on our plates um, in, into the future. But also it's about communities and people and society and economic and social well-being. And so that's something that we pin together, pull together to call blue prosperity. It, and blue prosperity is really about um, environmental, economic and social well-being. And those are things that we push for with our process. So, um that's the, the basics of, of what our organization focus on, focuses on. And I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about some more of the details of that, if that would be helpful or interesting. No, definitely, because you had about the mission being there to protect 30 percent of the oceans by 2030. So, yeah, uh, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, uh, especially the blue prosperity and why protecting the environment is so important. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the, the 30%. So 30% by 2030 is a global um, target. Internationally, um, a lot of countries are increasingly pushing for 30% by 2030. Um, these, these countries range from large developed nations like uh, Fe or France, um, the UK, uh, the US, President Biden has um, pushed for 30 by 30, to very small but big ocean nations like Fiji, um, Tonga, Samoa, the Federated States of Micronesia, and many more. So these are all, um, you know, there's this international pressure. And so the question is, well, why? Why do we need 30% ocean protection? Um, there are some, in fact, who think that we, we need to protect as much as 50% of the planet to ensure the long-term health and resilience of the planet. Um, but there's an, a recognition that, that it's, it's not 
that we can't be using everything, right? We need to set aside some areas for preservation. Um, preservation areas are important for a lot of reasons. One is you need to help rebuild um, fish stocks, recover biodiversity, um, but also to preserve those um, basic components of biodiversity. There's a ton we still don't know about the ocean. So it's important to hold places aside so that we can um, just you know, essentially serve as a safeguard for, for our future. Um, and even uh, ocean protection is also crucial for climate change. Um, the ocean is an important carbon sink. And so when we think about our climate and how to mitigate the impacts from um, greenhouse gases, the ocean is a, a crucial piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Um, and to, to further that work, you also look at uh, marine spatial planning as well. Yeah, so marine spatial planning is is the is a bit of the how we do it. So marine spatial planning is as a concept is just like land use planning, but for the ocean. So if you live in a city, um, you know there's places that you go where there's a bunch of commercial establishments. There's other places that are residential. Um, that's normal for us. If you go to the beach, actually think about this as a little mini marine spatial plan. There might be on the beach some places that are where people go swimming and other places where maybe jet skis come and go, or there's another place where surfers hang out, right? That's, we separate those, those uses so that they don't conflict with each other or, you know, cause um, impacts, right? So marine spatial planning is the, the bigger version of that in that we, we look at the ocean and we look at how we're using it today. And, um, and then, think about how we want to use it in the future. So do we want a wind farm in the ocean? Um, do we want to have aquaculture? We, we need to separate those things or maybe put them together. And then part of that is also identifying the important areas for preservation. What are the most important, unique habitats, um, special places, important places for endangered species that you may want to protect? and ensure that human impacts don't cause further harm. Definitely, and it, it, last um, session I had with uh, Dr. Um, Matthias Korkosh uh, was talking about sustainable fisheries. And I know that you do work in that area as well, just to um, make sure that future generations have food, food security. Absolutely, um, yeah. Maybe, uh, can you talk about some of the other core objectives? I, I believe that includes communications and a number of other things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So I'll touch on a couple of things. So one, you mentioned sustainable fisheries, and that is also a piece of the puzzle for us. So we can, you can design um, fishery management tools through marine spatial planning, and we do that. But there's also a lot of other important components um, of managing a fishery effectively. Uh, so it, it, it's helping out in, in things like setting up monitoring systems. So is there, you know, as, as fish are being landed, is anybody tracking what's being landed, how much is being landed. Um, we use that information to then evaluate the status of those fisheries and then make management decisions. Um, and so the kinds of management decisions that can be made are size restrictions, um, gear restrictions, restricting where you can go or when you can fish for certain types of fish, all in an effort to ensure that those, there's long-term sustainability of that resource. Um, another piece of the puzzle for us is, is blue economy. How do we help grow uh, sustainable ocean economies for a lot of island nations, which is where we work. Um, they're looking to tourism as an important sustainable activity to help bolster their local economy. 
um, in a way that doesn't lead to environmental degradation. So we help work on those systems. And then, as you mentioned, in addition to those things, there's some core types of things that we do. So we work with countries to uh, develop laws and policies that um, can create these frameworks for marine spatial planning or sustainable fisheries. Uh, we also um, undertake communications and outreach to help communities understand different aspects of the ocean or understand processes or programs that are important for management of the ocean. Um, we build capacity through training programs. And then uh, probably the some of the most fun, uh, exciting part of the work that we do is that we undertake research and, and um, expeditions to evaluate mm -hmm. the status of uh, the oceans and the places that we work. Yeah, and I, I bet the expeditions are the most fun part of it. And But then you have all of these other things that you're kind of juggling there. So you lead this entire program as the executive director. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about your your role there as the executive director at the Wade Institute. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So um, as you can tell from my my history in working as a scientist and a lawyer, I um, I like a lot of different things. And I think that when I was in school, um, the the world, uh, you, you did one thing right in school. Like if you got, I got your, my PhD in marine biology, but there wasn't a lot of interdisciplinary work. I think that today there's been a real change and a lot of students today are, um, are exploring interdisciplinary studies because we recognize that the solutions to the challenges that we face are not siloed, right? They're, they're big problems that you have to come at from a lot of different angles. And so um, I have the good fortune of working on a lot of different parts of our program and, and help to develop our strategic direction um, of our program and, and get to think about a lot of different things like economics and, and law and policy and science um, and, and, and help pull that all together to design um, the programs that we that we work on. And, and maybe I'll pause here and say that so a big part of my time is talking with leaders in countries, policymakers to help design these kinds of programs. And in fact, today we're um, working with eight different countries and territories around the world um, through these partnerships to to support them, so um, I, I sometimes aren't am not the one who gets to get in the water, although I do sometimes. But um, but I, I do have the great opportunity to sort of see the whole thing and help conceptualize what we're doing and how to do it. I know, and I know that you had said that there's so many great people in the world trying to uh, achieve these uh, sustainable futures. And with this hat that you wear as the executive director, going back when you had said about the expeditions, uh, maybe you could talk about some of the expeditions that you have done and some of the work your organization has done in that particular area. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. And as I said, it's for me, like it's the most fun. And I, I've had the opportunity to go on um, one of our expeditions in Tonga. And and every time our team goes out, um, I'm always like, you know envious that they're there. In fact, um, we have a team in the water now. Um, we're, we're undertaking an expedition currently in the Maldives. Um, so uh, we're working with scientists and photographers from the United States and from our team, but also about half the team is Maldivian. Um, so we're working with people on the ground to evaluate the status of the Maldives coral reefs. And um, the, the assessment that we're doing right now is the second of of um, 
the second leg or the second part of a comprehensive assessment of the Maldives. So it's it's really incredible because you can, I don't know if you've been to the Maldives or um, as you may know, it's it's an enormous, enormous place. It's made up of thousands, um, or more than a thousand islands uh, that stretch hundreds of miles over the Indian Ocean. And, and our team by the end of this expedition will have gone from the farthest atolls in the north to the farthest in the south and are um, evaluating by visiting each atoll and islands on around each of these atolls um, the status of the coral reefs. So it's it's really an incredible undertaking. And, and at the end of that, um, the goal here is to be able to give information to the government and to the people of the Maldives about the status of its resources. So uh, we're not just doing research for the sake of research or to take mm -hmm. it back to the US and use it for academic publication, um, but really to inform management decisions. And we look at things like, what is the status of coral reefs in developed areas versus um, islands that are completely undeveloped? Or we can look at different types of island development. Some islands in the Maldives have resorts on them. Other islands are places where communities live. And so how do the, the status of those ecosystems um, vary? Uh, the other thing that we are doing in, is looking at coral reefs over time. And so mm. there have been um, ongoing monitoring programs in the Maldives, and, and we can revisit those sites and then say, there's more coral today than yesterday, or there's less. And that helps us understand um, the status and then the potential impacts, like what's really causing that that impact or causing that change. Yeah. I know you had noted about how many juvenile corals there are as an indicator for the future. And um, you had said that there were a couple different things that you focus when you're doing the research in the, in the field. So yeah. the status of the coral reefs and can, just, can you hit on a couple of those? Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So when we're working, yeah. So when we do research in the field and we say like, yeah, we're evaluating the status of the coral reef ecosystem. Like, what does that really mean? How do we, <laughs> right. yeah. how do we say, look at a coral and say, are you healthy? Are you not? Like, what do we, <laughs> right. yeah. And so, so we do a few things. One is we can jump in the water and take a look at a reef and look at like, well, what is the percentage of this coral reef system that's actually living coral? And what kind of coral is there? Is it staghorn and elkhorn, like all those crazy branching corals? Is it stuff that's like bouldered corals? And are they healthy or is it bleached? Is it dead or alive? Um, is it rubble uh, or is it mostly algae? So often in a coral reef ecosystem, a lot of algae is an indicator that um, it's not a healthy system, that you know, coral and algae are in competition. And if you get a lot of nutrients in the water, a lot of coral death, and you don't have the herbivores that eat the algae, then algae can take over and essentially lose um, that structural component and the beautiful aspects of a coral reef ecosystem that are really essential. Like that structure provides a home for all of these fish. So, um, so that's, so we look at this status of the system. The other thing that we look at is, is juvenile corals, because as you can imagine, the more babies that are in the water, it tells you like, hey, they're making babies and those can grow up to be healthy corals. If there's not very many babies and you have degraded coral, you're in a really difficult place in terms of like, will this system recover if you remove the human impacts? 
Um, another thing that we look at is the fish. So as I mentioned, fish like herbivores, um, both invertebrate as well as um, you know the the bony fish, um, eat can consume algae, and so they provide an important um, regulator of that coral reef ecosystem. So we look at what types of fish are there. Also, as you may know, sharks are really important for keeping um, coral reefs healthy, just like predators in the terrestrial system help keep uh, terrestrial systems healthy. So we can look at, are there sharks in the water? Um, we also look at the total biomass of fish. So we count a bunch of fish and as our scientists are in the water counting and, and identifying fish, they're also doing these you know, on the fly measurements or evaluations of what is the size of each of those fish. And that gives us a sense of the fish biomass. And once again, that tells you how healthy the system is. Lots of fish biomass, good. Little fish biomass, bad, right? In terms of the, the long-term sustainability. So we combine all of those data together and anal analyze that, and that helps inform the government on how to manage those systems moving forward. Yeah, and that's all very important. And, you know, so are the coral reef systems, often called the rainforest of the sea. You know, they, they're home to one of Earth's most diverse ecosystems, these uh, different coral reefs. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, interesting, all the work that you're doing, and I appreciate you explaining it, uh, you know, just so that p listeners who, you know, aren't the marine biologists have an idea of, like, you know, what is it that we look at to determine the health of these different reefs? Um, now, you know, your background is very interesting. I mean, you have your PhD and then you went and received a JD with a certificate in environmental law from the University of California, Berkeley. So you pivoted from science to law. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us, you know, what sparked your change yeah. to do this kind of shift? Yeah, yeah. So so as I said, I when I was in science, um, I, I realized that there's there's this wealth of information that I, and I and at the time I really felt like if we could just tell the policymakers if we had scientists who could engage on the legal side that we could convince them that um, that that they should be making decisions based on the science and and so I went to law school and and I um, and I and the other thing like you know I'll, I'll admit that my life in the lab I was, you know, was not how I wanted to spend my time, that <laughs> science is really, really hard. And uh, yeah. and I think that the scientists who are really successful thrive on failure, right? Like so many scientific experiments fail over and over again. So admittedly, I had to like find a career that was not, not that, um, but I also still feel like science, like I, I, as a topic, as a subject is just where my heart is. But um, law and policy is, is super fascinating because at the end of the day, it's policymakers who are making decisions. So I, I switched over to this career in um, and, and went to, to law school. And, and in law school, I had the good fortune of going to Berkeley where the Law of the Sea Institute exists. And I, and I got a, a position during law school working for the Law of the Sea Institute. And so it was really awesome to work with these team of, you know, international legal ocean law experts to, to, to realize like the opportunity there was in this field and, and the opportunity to really um, use my science brain to and apply that in in the law and policy world so um, yeah that was that was the inspiration and then I've just been you know, super lucky in my in my career you know I um, after law school I 
I ended up landing a job at an organization called the Environmental Laws Law Institute, which is, you know, a kind of think tank organization that that evaluates and studies environmental laws to think about how to um, achieve sustainable futures for for people and the planet. And um, there, I was able to found and direct an ocean program, and um, and yeah, that that was really where I took off in my in my legal world. And that's fascinating. So maybe you could tell us now about the work at the Wade Institute, you know, because I know law and policy makes up a big part of that as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually it's how I ended up with my job at the Wade Institute. I was doing contract work for them at first um, on law and policy. And then I, um, once again, was fortunate enough to land a position as the executive director. So so it's uh, it's near and dear to my heart. And And the way that we do law and policy, like I think for Maybe for non-lawyers, it seems super boring, but I will say I think it's really fun and interesting. And, um, (laughs) you know, what we do is we start off by analyzing legal frameworks. So we'll look at what are all the laws in a country that relate to the ocean and how do they apply? And then how do they have a system in place that allows them to effectively manage it? And if not, what do they need? And that's where we shift into the world of legal drafting and drafting laws to help create uh, more sustainable ocean management systems. Um, So I'll give you uh, my favorite example, or one of my favorite examples, which is um, the work that we did on law and policy for the island of Barbuda. And that's actually the first project I I worked on um, with with the Wade Institute on the legal framework. So the island of Barbuda is this tiny island in um, in the Eastern Caribbean Sea. And, and many people think when I say Barbuda, they're thinking Bermuda or maybe Barbados, but no. Um, Barbuda is part of Antigua in Barbuda. And there's an amazing and super interesting history there that I won't talk about at this point, but in, in essence, Barbuda is an island of 1600 people. And um, Antigua, a lot of people know it's a big island and a lot of uh, you know, people go there on cruise ships and stuff like that. But Barbuda is the sister island. It's um, an amazing, amazing place with very little development. As I said, only 1600 people and the people of Barbuda manage their ocean resources. So we worked with the community, with the Barbuda Council, which is the local government there to design an ocean plan that protected 30% of its waters. Um, and they established fishery management um, systems and, and other measures to, to make sure that they had a sustainable ocean. So as a legal drafter, we then looked at you know, what was their authority? Where did they have existing authority to do this work? And we were able to work with the government, um, with the you know lawyers from government to design regulations for um, Barbuda's ocean. And, and through this, we established a marine protected area system that protects 30%, actually, I think 33% of their ocean waters, including their coral reef ecosystems. Um, we established things like prohibitions for harvesting parrotfish, which are, as I said, parrotfish are an herbivore, and they're really important for maintaining healthy coral. Um, we supported minimum harvest sizes for things like lobster so that they were harvesting lobster that were adults that had a chance to have made babies before they were harvested. Um, It's a really, in Barbuda, lobster is a really important export uh, fishery. Um, We also worked with them to prohibit the commercial harvest of sharks. So there's some traditional um, 
harvest. Um, very, very, I think a single person is involved in, in that, but very small scale. And, and I guess that's one of the other things I would point out about, about the work that we do is it's all, it, it's really important in designing legal systems or, or doing any work with another country that it's all context specific. And I think where, you know, we can come in with our ideas about in our technical knowledge, but really um, what makes something work in a place is, is it has to be based on the parameters of that place. We can't apply a US law in Barbuda and expect it to function. We have to think about like, what is the, the Barbuda law that will work for Barbudans? Yeah. And th you said that that was an important part to ensure that the laws are implemented and they're also not just on paper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's and, this world uh, of paper parks, right? Like we, <laughs> um, that, that a lot of places and um, there, there's many examples of from around the world where things get established on paper, but never get implemented in practice. And that's, mm -hmm. That's super success uh, or super important for for success is that you get past mm -hmm. the designation and and that that you get to implementation. So that's another piece of the puzzle that that we like to work on is not just get the lines on the map, but really then help and and work with countries to help support the setup of you know administrative systems, licensing systems. It, it may be like signage, outreach, and education. All of those things that lead to compliance with any kind of designation that you create. Yeah, I, I know, because I, I think about the, you know, Paris Agreement and all of the countries that pledged, you know, the reduction in carbon. And it was nice to, you know, have everybody sign the paperwork, but right. it's actually implementing it and making it real. That's yes. the real, you know, action equals success in that. And I, I know you know my particular interest is in climate change. And I know this is an important issue for many of the island nations that you work with. So maybe you can talk a little bit about specific places where you have seen the effect of climate change and then the challenges that these uh, places face as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, climate change. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> that, tiny, that tiny topic. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, island where we work, we work with island nations, and island nations are particularly vulnerable. Um, economically, um, they, they don't have the, the size and the safety nets that, that many other countries have. Um, and they're also, in many cases, on the front lines of climate change. Um, you know, the Caribbean Sea is in, you know, takes the hit from hurricanes um, coming out of the Atlantic all the time. And, and so um, as, as we see increasing um, storm intensity, the island, men, you know, those islands are, are facing that. The same is happening in the, in the South Pacific with cyclones. Um, we also, um, islands are, are facing huge challenges with sea level rise and many islands are low low lying not all certainly hawaii you know for example is not but but there are many atoll like islands um that are out there that are on the front lines for um, impacts from sea level rise of course in coral reef ecosystems are are being um in incredibly impacted by warming oceans to the point where you know some people question the future of coral reefs completely um, ocean acidification is threatening coral reefs and shellfish. So, so all of these things are um, <clears throat> are are things that our our countries are facing. And and um, maybe I'll give you the example of the Maldives. Uh, the Maldives has probably received some of the greatest international attention attention on climate change. Um, former President Nasheed 
uh, had once famously held a, a parliamentary meeting underwater. And, and he did this as a way to show um, the world like climate change is real and, and climate change impacts are real in the Maldives. These aren't just things that are happening in the future, but but affecting the country right now in terms of erosion, uh, storm surge, things like that. So um, in a place like the Maldives, it's very low lying um, in terms of its atolls. So it's really on the front line of impacts from, from sea level rise. So um, there's that. And then and then the other thing that the Maldives in particular is facing is, is chlor coral um, bleaching. And there was a major warm uh, warming event in 2016 that caused devastating impacts across the reefs in the Maldives. And a big question science question and our team right now is looking at you know looking at this question is is can these reefs recover from from those warming events and what species are in the best position to recover so uh, what makes reefs resilient um, compared to non-resilient ones are there certain species of coral that have what it takes to survive warmer oceans um, so that's that's a big part of adapting to to or thinking about our future with um, with the impacts from climate change. Yeah, uh, I know. It, it, there's so much to think about uh, yeah. when it comes to you know, what they're facing and how your organization helps them to design these, you know, ocean plans. Um, so maybe you could provide our listeners with some context of the work that you're doing around the globe. I, uh, I mean, you had mentioned the Maldives and Barbuda, but I know that you're you know, working on a number of other things as well. Yeah, yeah, we work. Yeah, as I said, as I mentioned, yeah, we have work at eight in eight different countries um, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, and um, yeah, I can talk to you about some of my. Well, they're all my favorite for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk to you about what what I think makes you know some things work. Um, so, so one of my favorite places on the planet is Tonga. And Tonga is um, in the South Pacific, for, for those who don't know it, its um, closest neighbor is Fiji to the, um, to the west of it. Um, and Tonga is just this really amazing island nation that's made up of, well, I want to say 140 islands or so, um, with, with communities that are ranged from, you know, 20 people on an island to the island of Tongatapu, which is the main island that has around 70,000 people. And the, the government of Tonga, long before we started working there, had made a decision to undertake a marine spatial planning process and committed to uh, creating a system of marine protection. Um, at, and also, in addition to that, on the fisheries side, had established a system of community fishing areas. And so we um, created a partnership with the government of Tonga and with another a local organization. It's called VIPA, which stands for Vavau Environmental Protection Association. Um, and, and together, um, we have been working to support marine spatial planning, um, <clears throat> as well as some other organizations that are, are participating. And what I what I think is really amazing is, um, and one of my favorite things about it is the the leadership of the government, um, the the members. It's across government, so there's people who are um, from government who are from the Ministry of Fisheries and from the Ministry of Natural Resources, the Ministry of the Environment, uh, ports, 
um, facility um, participates, the the um, people who represent the Navy participate, and they've they've come together to design a plan that works for everyone, and and they take uh, participation very seriously, and they they have. Um, held consultation meetings with every single ocean community. And it's like 140 communities have been consulted in the design of this plan. And I think that um, what inspires me about it is that here is a government that is like, that really truly believes in this, that we need to take strong action for a sustainable future. And they're willing to take that action and they, and they are, um, driving, you know, our, our agenda towards a future, you know, sustainable ocean. And, and, um, and so it gives me a lot of hope in the sense that there's, you know, there's a lot that even a, a small country that is a huge ocean country can do. And I, I think that we'll see a lot of other countries follow suit um, in the future in, in the way that, that Tonga has, or at least I hope that's the case. So Tonga is one of my favorites. Um, and I'm happy to provide other examples. I have other. <laughs> no, I know. I was going to say, I mean, it is impressive if you think about all of the stakeholders that they brought together. Yeah. I mean, in a Polynesian kingdom of more than, would you say, 170 different islands, you know, they're trying to get everybody, you know, everybody's voice heard, which is extremely important. And then, uh, you know, uh, agreement on how to move forward. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, maybe if you could just provide maybe two other examples other than uh, Tonga sure. uh, of, you know, some of your favorites that you've worked on. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll jump across to, to the Caribbean and, and talk about Curacao. Um, Curacao is part of the former Netherland Antilles, um, or it's a part of the kingdom of the Netherlands. And it's an amazing place. I would, it's um, right up against Venezuela. So I think 40 miles or something away from Venezuela. And it's a really um, interesting place with a diverse economy. It has major tourism uh, sector. Uh, it also has an oil refinery and it has a, um, a very small but important uh, fishing community. And um, it also has some of the best remaining reefs in all of the Caribbean. So we started a project there in 2015. Um, and, and once again, the government has really shown some fabulous leadership with uh, establishing what they call the Blue Ribbon Committee. That is a, an interministerial committee made up of, of many different government officials that provide advice to their ministers and to the prime minister on how to manage the ocean. And, and through this partnership, um, they have gotten across the finish line, the, the creation of a Curacao Marine Park. So um, it's been 20 plus years in the making. There's been efforts to establish this marine park. And finally, I think in 2019, they firmly established it in law. And I just this year, they um, established the funding mechanism for the management of the park. And um, you know, for visitors, it's it's one of the reasons people go to Curacao to to go to this marine park. It's called East Point, and it has you know, really incredible reef systems and and fish out there. Um, the other thing that the government has uh, established over the last five years is what are called fishery reproduction zones, and these are have been areas that have been designated as protected areas to help rebuild the reef system. Um, and the the um, rebuild the fisheries. So um, Curacao over the last 
since the early 1980s, um, there was an assessment that was done. We came back in in 2015 and, and did another assessment. And what we found was that over 50% of the coral have, have been lost. So it's been a 50% decline mm -hmm. in coral over that period of time. Um, and, and similarly, there's, you know, across the Caribbean, there's been a large uh, reduction in um, the the biomass of fish. So our hope is through these reproduction, these fish reproduction zones that also protect the habitat that it will help protect their coral reef ecosystems and help rebuild those local fisheries that are super important for um, the communities that the people who, who fish for in, in Curacao are um, very small scale, like, you know, boats that are less than 12 meters in length. There's, there's not commercial. It's, it, you know, there is small scale commercial mm -hmm. or local commercial. There's not export. Um, at this time. So um, anyways, that's been a, a really great story as well. Um, and now we're working with the government to try to establish a, an offshore marine sanctuary, so a much larger marine sanctuary in, in some of the waters in the, in the pelagic environment as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that they, uh, you know, I, I hope that everything, the plans that they're putting in place will come to fruition yeah. Um, especially with the, you know, the loss that you were saying there. I mean, it's pretty striking to hear about. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and you... it's really um, challenging. But I, I think that the, the the bright spot, the shiny spot for all of this and in a place like Curacao, like all the building blocks are still there. Like they have juvenile mm. coral. They have you know, less fish, but they still have, you know, there's fish out there that that those stocks can be rebuilt. And, and that to me is the is the reason, you know, that we're doing this work is that it's not, you know, there's a lot of impacts that we've, and we've done a lot of, you know, mismanagement of the ocean, but the ocean is also a place that is incredibly resilient and we have the ability to rebuild it. And, um, and that to me is what, you know, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, no, I agree. And speaking of resilience, you were talking about Barbuda. I mean, I, you talk a little, can you talk a little bit about the resilience there that you've seen? Yeah, yeah. So Barbuda, right. So Barbuda is, as I said, we, we helped create, establish this legal framework and system, and we were actually doing the implementation. So, you know, as we talked about, um, we didn't want to leave, leave Barbuda with a paper park. And so we had been working in the years since 2014, the establishment of the framework to support implementation. And in 2017, um, Barbuda was hit by Hurricane Irma. And um, I don't know if you remember the stories coming out, but it was the Hurricane mm -hmm. Irma was the is was a hurricane like category five plus plus, right? Like it potentially mm -hmm. broke the charts. And in fact, they don't even know what the you know, what the winds were because it it broke the, you know, the, the monitoring equipment when it went through Barbuda to monitor um, the wind speed. Um, and it went directly over the top of Barbuda. And and it was amazing. Everybody, the Barbudans were all on Barbuda when it hit. And um, it was just utterly devastating. So 95% of the buildings had some structural damage. 50% were completely de destroyed. And what what's amazing is that um, there was tragically one, a single loss of life. And, and what is amazing about that story is it, it, it's shocking that it wasn't more than that. Um, and, and so this, this place was enormously impacted. And, um, then the question is, you know, what's, what does recovery look like? The entire population of, of Barbuda was taken off the Island. 
Um, and, and, but they've come back and they are rebuilding. And so, um, and, and the, when we went the week after the storm, um, to support the Barbudan community and getting back to the Island and, um, the, I just can't even describe flying over it. It looked like a bomb had gone off. Like there was no, the normally mm. Barbuda is covered in amazing mangroves. They have, um, the, the Codrington lagoon is, um, is this amazing lagoon system. It's, it's home to the largest frigate bird colony in all of the Caribbean. And they live in these mangrove areas and the mangroves were completely stripped of all their leaves, like nothing left. Like there were no, it's just brown. Normally this incredible yeah. green island is just brown. So now four years later, um, there are, I think around a thousand people back on the island. Not everyone came back. Um, and the mangrove systems are starting to recover. Um, and we actually were just discussing um, when and how we can get back into the water to evaluate, um, you know, how much change has happened in the water, underwater. But, but what to me about Barbuda that's amazing is that it's um, is really the resilience of the people of Barbuda and their, um, you know, deep connection to their ocean and their ecosystem and and they're you know restoring and rebuilding um and and i think that that goes hand in hand with you know we think about our, our future and it's it's about the people and about sustainable communities and resilient communities as well as resilient ocean ecosystems that that support those communities so uh, it's one of you know yeah. i think a, a story of, of incredible tragedy and also a story of like quite a bit of hope for me again yeah. I, no, I agree. I mean, especially considering how powerful that hurricane was and the fact that the people and the place itself have come back. I mean, it was September 2017 when yeah. it hit. So, you know, it's only been a few years. But as you said, they, you know, everybody's kind of come back and it's, you know, starting to, you know, uh, rebuild. Mm -hmm. And that's really what resilience is. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of resilience and some of the things that, uh, you know, I always see some of these uh, smaller islands facing um, is plastic pollution, which is a major concern. And many of these small islands have to deal with the impacts of large scale continental countries that just kind of dump, you know, their trash or plastics into the oceans. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about just some of the ways you're helping these smaller islands deal with these types of issues. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> plastics is like is like climate change, right? And that um, yes, right. You know, there. These the countries where we work, they're not the they're not the cause, right? Um, there you could, you know, you could remove make all of them no use, you know, zero plastics, and you they would still be facing the the impacts from mm -hmm. plastics. Same same when it comes to climate change, you have that same challenge um, that that you're dealing with a problem that is coming in from the outside. So they're not the source, but they're they're feeling the brunt of the impact. So. In, in the context of plastics, um, you know, one of the things that we we support are things like beach cleanups. Um, we've supported um, legal the development of legal frameworks to become plastic free, um, and you know have have supported information sharing. I think there's innovation coming out of of um, some island nations who are trying to figure out how to use their plastic waste in a different way. So how can you um, transform that impact into something that is, you know, some kind of 
positive outcome. Um, I think that it was Curacao where there was somebody who's trying to take that plastic waste and convert it into furniture. Um, so, so mm. there's, um, but I think that the other important thing that, that Island nations can do and, and have the, um, you know, have a voice on an international stage to ensure that the rest of the world hears that and knows that and, and pushes at the diplomatic levels for the countries that are the main causes of things like plastic pollution and climate change, that they take ownership of that um, and, and deal with the problem. So, um, you know, that's another really important part of the, the island, um, you know, islands in terms of having that voice and, and being able to, I don't know if it's like they're, you know, the canaries in the coal mine or, um, you know, they're at the front line, certainly of these impacts. And, um, and they're often the small ones, you know, it's a little bit of the David and Goliath story of them having to fight against uh, much larger nations who may, you know, it's inadvertent, right? Like, it's not that anybody wants to pollute, but um, we certainly are the ones, you know, in the United States, for instance, we have to take action here to ensure that we're not polluting places beyond our borders. No, I totally agree with you. And I love that your organization is, you know, God, doing so much on so many different levels. So how do the countries that you work with find your organization in the first place? Yeah, we it's a bit of finding each other. So the way that we uh, build a partnership is our first step is, and, and we, I guess I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but we only work with countries who, who want to work with us. So, you know, we don't, we don't, come into a country and say, hey, these are all the things that we're doing. Um, we, our starting point is to talk with governments about, about our work and see if we have mutual goals and um, to figure out if we, you know, as the Wade Institute and the partners we work with can provide support. Um, sometimes we meet up at international meetings back when we used to have them in person. That was a way we got to know um got to know other governments. Um, sometimes we reach out to governments where we've seen they've made international commitments. So for instance, several countries just signed on to uh, what they call the High Ambition Coalition that's aiming to protect 30% by 2030. So those signals tell us that a government is thinks that these are important um, issues and, and targets. And, and then, you know, we do our job to try to reach out to them and, and see if we have a way to create a partnership. Yeah. Oh, in the days before COVID, when right. we used to be able to meet at conferences, right? right. right. <laughs> so, um, so now once you've decided to, you know, work with a country and they want to work with you, like, you know, what do you, what do you do? How do you go about, you know, coming together? So once we, yeah, we, our starting point is to create an MOU. Um, a memorandum yeah. of understanding, essentially laying out the basic terms of what the thing is that we're going to do. But that's really just the very first step. Um, when we when we work with the government, we also work with um, key leadership from their country. So it may be there may be NGOs that have expertise that will be part of the program of work, or other stakeholders who. Who come together. We also work with quite a few partner institutions that pull in technical expertise. So we work with um, UC um, LA uh, on Blue Economy. We work with a group called MLab, the, um, oh gosh, what is Environmental Markets Lab at um, UC Santa Barbara. Um, we work with a, a couple of other legal groups and um, 
all of those organizations come together to provide technical support to a country. Uh, so we have our, our big picture things that we work on, right? Like marine spatial planning, blue economy, sustainable fisheries. But as we kind of talked about in the context of legal development in Barbuda, there is, there's no one size fits all approach. So each country is unique. And, and so it's, we spend about six months once we have an MOU working together to really figure out like, okay, we know we're going to work on blue economy, but what do we really mean by that? And how are we going to do it? Um, so that we set up a program of work that, that is going to work for everyone. Um, and, and, you know, I'd say like partnership is key and government leadership is key. Like we are just, we're an outside organization that's providing support and, it had like, you know, this kind of work, it has to be owned by the country. It has to be led by the country and by their communities. Otherwise it doesn't work. Like, you know, we're, we're just, a, you know, we just have some skills that we can transfer and, um, and can provide support. But at the end of the day, you know, that's also a really important part of our work is to, to make sure that the way that we structure our work together is that it, it leads to greater local capacity and builds that institutional strength within the country so that they have um, the tools that they need to carry the program forward. Yeah, well, it's amazing work that you're carrying out and I applaud you for everything that you're doing, you know, uh, from working with these uh, different uh, countries that need the help, you know, that you bring in partner institutions, that you help them to organize, that you're working with them on laws. I mean, it's really amazing everything that you do. Um, so uh, again, kudos to you and the work that you're doing, Catherine. And I always like to end uh, the podcast with a message of hope for the future. So given everything that, uh, you know, you've seen and that you've done, can you provide our listeners with what you see as hope for the future? Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that because I'm an optimist. I'm like, you know, <laughs> mm. I wouldn't be doing this <laughs> if I wasn't. Um, I, I I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. There's there's so much. Um, there's, you know, there's a couple of things that I would highlight. One is that it, at the highest levels, there's growing political leadership in, in this space. You know, this the pandemic, I think, has brought to the forefront this need to build build back or recover in a more resilient way, in a more sustainable way. Um, so, so that to me is really exciting. The other thing that I, I think is maybe even more, more exciting and gives me more hope is, is the movement of our youth. And there's just this rising tide of voices that are demanding change, um, that they're demanding a brighter future. And, and uh, I think that they're active, you know, they're politically active, um, social media for all the things that make me crazy about social media has has really provided this international platform and allowed voices that wouldn't otherwise be heard to be heard. So um, I'm excited. And I, I think that there are leaders who deeply believe that our future, you know, is with green and blue economies, that we can't keep destroying habitats and resources, but that we have to preserve the planet so that future generations have, you know, hopefully something better than we have, right? Like we shouldn't just be trying to hold the line. We really should be trying to build towards something even better that our grandparents had or our great grandparents have. So um, I, I really think that there's a great 
swell and, and rising tide that is um, an opportunity. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about our future. Well, it's wonderful. And I appreciate that message of hope. And again, for the work that you're doing. And we appreciate having you on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you here, Catherine. Thank you so much, Colleen. It's been great. The time for action is now, my friends. Please take a few minutes today to write a letter or email your member of Congress in support of strong action on climate change. Make it personal. Have a call to action and include your contact information. For my ocean stewards and citizen scientists out there, you are the ones helping us make a difference by using your voice. And I thank you for that. This will be my last podcast for Future Frogmen. I had the pleasure of kicking off the first quarter of 2021 and introducing you to the students, researchers, nonprofits, and blue economy organizations that are working to stop climate change. I am now passing the baton to others in our organization to share their voice. If there's a topic you would like us to touch upon, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. Thank you again for joining us today. And please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature.